The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawbox this Monday morning. These are your headlines. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is hospitalised. Now, Downing Street is calling the decision a precautionary step as the UK leader continues to suffer persistent symptoms 10 days after contracting the virus. The rift widens between Saudi Arabia and Russia as make or break talks on an oil output deal get delayed with both sides blaming each other. Meanwhile, President Trump adds to the downside pressure on prices, threatening to impose tariffs on crude imports in a bid to shield U.S. producers from the sell-off. But U.S. futures and Asian stocks shrug off the renewed tensions in energy markets, starting the week firmer, firmly higher amid signs the pandemic is slowing. Cases in Italy, France and Spain decline, but European leaders call for a new Marshall Plan. As the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti tells NBC News in an exclusive interview, the EU is facing an unprecedented challenge. If uh, an outpost withdraws, the virus will spread again and uh, our efforts and sacrifice would be in vain. For this reason, it's crucial the cohesion and cooperation of our democracies. So, very warm welcome, everybody, to this Monday morning edition of Squawk Box. Let's get you up to date on that headline. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been taken to hospital just 10 days after being diagnosed with coronavirus. Downing Street says the move follows advice from his doctor. Steve is at St Thomas's Hospital in central London. Uh, and, Steve, we're just speculating, aren't we, that it is St Thomas's uh, where Boris Johnson is. But how serious, ultimately, is the condition of the Prime Minister. Let me go through those two points separately. Very good morning to you, Jeff. Good morning, Juliana, as well. We do not know which central London hospital Boris Johnson is in. In fact, I was actually due uh, to take uh, my cameraman Mike and myself down to Excel, which is the Nightingale Hospital this morning, to explain to everyone how, quite miraculously, in about nine days, a 4,000-bed uh, hospital was put together in London's Docklands. But we've come down to St Thomas's because we are speculating and doing no more than that, like everyone else, that the undisclosed London hospital uh, is St Thomas's as well. So let's give you the chronology of what happened. 9.25 p.m. last night, we got a, a number 10 press statement, which said the following. On the advice of his doctor, the prime minister has been admitted to hospital for tests. A precautionary step. The prime minister continues to have, and we'll use this phrase, persistent symptom, symptoms of coronavirus. This is 10 days after testing positive. They made the point again, it is purely uh, precautionary. Symptoms include a high temperature. Uh, he remains in charge of the government uh, and is in contact with colleagues and officials as well. Now, others are speculating, including the Times, I note, uh, that said at 8 p.m. yesterday evening, the Prime Minister was driven across the Thames uh, to the aforementioned St Thomas's Hospital, given oxygen, no need for an ambulance and no emergency uh, admission as well. We've had the Foreign Secretary, the First Secretary of State. We understand Dominic Raab would be the designated successor uh, and will be chairing a coronavirus cabinet ministers meeting at 9.15 a.m. this morning. Donald Trump last night uh, began his White 
White House presser, uh, sending our nation's well wishes to Boris Johnson, who he called a great friend of his, a great gentleman and a great leader as well. Uh, this comes, of course, at a time, Jeff, uh, when the UK death toll went up incredibly high over the weekend. Another 621 deaths announced yesterday. In addition to the ones that were announced on um, Saturday, that takes the UK death toll to 4,934. That's the latest we have from central London, Jeff. And Steve, just adding to the uh, sense of uh, siege mentality here in the UK, obviously the higher death toll, the Prime Minister's gone to hospital and Her Majesty the Queen came out over the weekend and made a statement, which is a fairly rare event for Her Majesty. Yeah, absolutely. The, Her Majesty last night across all uh, the terrestrial channels uh, was on at 8 p.m. last night, uh, basically giving support to the nation, saying to the nation, it sounded very, very much like uh, she was making a lot of analogies between the current crisis and how Britain coped during the Second World War, and especially, of course, uh, the dark days of the Blitz when it was Britain, the British Empire, pretty much against the might of Nazi Germany as well. So there were a lot of analogies that we will overcome. And if we show the same kind of spirit, uh, that was shown uh, back in 1940, 1941 during the horrendous days and weeks and months of the Blitz. Uh, then Britain would come through this as well. But as you say, a rare intervention uh, from Her Majesty the Queen. I know we're going to play some of the Queen a little later on in the programme, so we'll leave you for the moment. We'll come back in just a wee while. Let's focus on that other story now. The oil price, an OPEC Plus meeting on cutting oil output, has been delayed until Thursday after a war of words erupted between Russia and Saudi Arabia. The meeting was due to take place today, both sides blaming each other for failing to strike a deal on production levels back in March. Since then, Riyadh has cut prices and flooded the market despite a demand collapse due to the pandemic effect. Well, President Trump has said he could slap sub substantial tariffs on crude oil coming into the US in order to protect American oil companies amid a supply glut. It comes as the Financial Times reports Canadian and US officials have held talks on the possibility of imposing levies on Russian and Saudi crude imports. Trump said he would use tariffs if necessary, but stressed he didn't think he would need to. Let's take a look at how WTI and Brent are trading this morning. Last week, a roller coaster week for oil. We did see WTI briefly touch below $20 a barrel before rallying later in the week. The best day on record for oil prices. Now this morning, we're seeing a bit of a pullback here. WTI down 3.6% to $27 a barrel. Brent down about 2% as investors price in what that means to have the OPEC Plus meeting delayed after being initially scheduled for today. Let's bring in uh, Chris Watling. Chris is CEO and Chief Market Strategist at Longview Economics. Chris, good morning to you. Just on the connection between the rally we've seen in equities, albeit a dead cat-like bounce at the moment, and the direction of travel for the oil price, are we not just getting the message here that equity up days are somewhat out of keeping with the broader sense of an intensifying economic crisis, which is the message that appears to be reinforced by the lower oil price. 
Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the oil price works in two ways, of course, as you know, it works uh, to cause disruption in credit markets and, and challenges in the sort of financial and credit conditions space that can feed back into the wider economy if, if banks pick up on that. But it also works as a stimulus. So a lower oil price in many ways has an enormous benefit for the world economy. And in fact, our calculations show that the cost of the world's oil is down about one and a half percent of global GDP in the last uh, three or four months since the start of this year. So it kind of works both both ways. I mean, it's clearly disruptive in the short term, but I think in the medium term, it's actually, it's really a, a very big positive, especially if you remember that coming into this year, the big theme was Western consumer starting to drive global growth. It wasn't China, it was the US households even backed up by, by those in Europe. Now, I know the global economy has changed a lot, but uh, certainly in terms of helping the US household cash flow and indeed, to a, to a lesser extent, the eurozone and European household cash flow, it's 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 very important that the oil price uh, is low. But as I say, it's disruptive for financial markets in the near term. Everything being equal, that would be absolutely the case, wouldn't it, Chris? But while we've now got the global economy effectively put on ice, there is no travel, uh, there is no flying, there is uh, very little um, in, in terms of shipping activity because the factories are just not producing the goods that need to be loaded on the cargo ships. That lower oil price and the benefit of that surely has reduced impact on corporate revenues, on all the things that it should be helping. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts at the moment. You're quite right. And we're dealing with um, a, an economic uh, a lockdown because of the health situation and, and therefore the economic implications of that, which is very challenging. But the market's trying to grapple with how long the lockdown will go on for and therefore how much of a, a demand hole you're going to get in the global economy, but also how much you're going to get in global oil demand. So, you know, the, 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 the market's trying to put the numbers together. You had the Trafigura chairman on your program last week talking about an annualized 30 to 35 million barrel drop in demand. I mean, our numbers sort of see that sort of uh, range five to six, uh, four to five, six per month, I think kind of makes sense. So, you know, if the lockdown only lasts for a month or two globally, then activity can start to normalize. And um, and then the benefits can start to be felt from a lower, lower oil price later in the year. It, it, as it as with many questions at the moment that we're all grappling with, it comes back to the health situation, the lockdown and and getting on top of that. Uh, Chris, very good morning to you. I just want to make one point, then ask you one question. Just a point for our viewers. If um, the Saudi and Russia want to continue this war to the bottom and outproduce out each other and produce as many barrels as possible, there is a, a very notable caveat to that, and that is the fact if A, the buyers don't want it, and B, storage is full, and C, the containers can't take any more on Seabourn as well, then they can't physically actually produce the kind of levels of barrels that they are talking about if there is nowhere to put the physical stuff. And I think that seems to be something that the market has missed. My second point, and perhaps more, more valid for our viewers, is what to do next in terms of their investments as well. Is there a play that you believe that is just obvious at these levels, Chris, or, or actually preferable, either, either in the commodity itself or the underlying stocks of the individual companies? 
Well, good. I mean, good question. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it seems obvious to me that whilst we might need lower oil prices at some stage, marginally lower in the near term to um, push supply out of the system. So uh, push companies into bankruptcy, if you like, and help the market to balance. Um, in the medium term, you need oil prices um, at 40 or higher, 40 to 50 is really where the market balances once it starts to normalize getting into next year. So in the medium term, I think there's an argument that oil uh, oil-related assets, as long as they're uh, capable of surviving the next few months, are attractive at this level. So, you know, it's a deeply unloved sector. Its uh, oil price has been extraordinarily low, uh, and the outlook is very pessimistic. People are very pessimistic on it, but I think it offers real value, even despite the the risks with climate change and so on. So. The world's going to need to use oil next year and later this year. So I think that's interesting. In terms of storage, uh, yes, that's a risk. But, um, you know, and I do think the market's thinking about that question. And uh, it's certainly something we've been looking into. And it seems to us that there is still some storage left. Yes, it's filling up. I believe the U.S. offered uh, to uh, 70 odd million barrels of capacity from its strategic petroleum reserve uh, last week. So capacity is being found. It is a risk. There's a lot in ships. You're quite right. Um, but um, but I think I think, you know, once we normalize that, that'll start to be drawn down. And there's probably enough to get us through that uh, hiccup for now. Uh, Chris, so taking it back to March when Saudi and Russia had, you know, this initial falling out, do you think at that stage they actually predicted the scale of the collapse in demand that we've seen since then? And, you know, what does that mean in terms of where we go from here in, in terms of how they relate to each other? Well, I think that's a good question. No, I don't think they would have predicted it. And I think the disruption in financial markets that was caused by that sort of second black swan, if you like, the health shock was the first one and the oil price move was the second one. And then markets became very dysfunctional and it kind of fed on itself. I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't have predicted the extent of the fall. And um, although although that perhaps wouldn't have been completely blindsided by it, considering they brought a lot of it about themselves. I think the interesting point now is is where the pressure points for Russia and Saudi, because both of them now, it seems to me, are going to be struggling quite quite meaningfully in terms of their economy. It seems that the health situation is deteriorating in Russia, which must add to the pressure for Putin to do a deal. And we know that the Saudis want a deal to cut output and, and, and lift prices anyway. So it seems to me, whilst they've delayed this OPEC meeting and whilst they're probably surprised by the extent of it, uh, the virus implications have worsened Russian's hand. And I, I, it seems to me the geopolitics makes sense that they will all come together at some stage, the Russians, the Saudis, and of course, the Americans, uh, and agree some sort of deal. So uh, again, I think that adds to the case for, uh, for, for energy related assets at this sort of level. Um, Chris, just before we let you go, I just want to refocus on your 2nd of April paper. Uh, second quarter rally expected, start rebuilding tactical equity overweight positions. Can you just briefly talk us through the argument and how long you hang on to that overweight for uh, and whether you think that we've actually seen a bottom now in this part of the market? Well, whether or not we've definitely seen a bottom, I'm not sure. I suspect we'll retest the low from March the 23rd on, on the S&P 500. And, and we may even go a couple of few percent below that. That's perfectly plausible price action. What we're driving at in that in that in that idea that there's a Q2 rally out there is that, you know, I think there's, there's an awful lot of bad news in the price. We we all know that the death rates in the virus in, in the Western economies are, are following the Italian path, largely Germany, the exception and some of Scandinavia. So 
So that's kind of in the price. Uh, there's uh, an awful lot of economic bad news in the price. We know that Q2 GDP is going to contract 10, 15 or 20 percent on an annualized basis in many Western economies. So there's nothing new there. That's all priced in. Sentiment's very depressed. Um, and yes, we might retest. And I think one should use that weakness to average into uh, a tactical bounce. But I think over the course of the quarter, uh, there's a lot of stimulus in the pipeline. There's a lot of sort of risk averse uh, uh, positioning, a lot of bad sentiment out there. And there's very good reason why we could get a nice rally in, in the second quarter. And that, that doesn't preclude a tough Q3 and Q4. I think you have to watch how the fundamentals play out, both economic and health, uh, to, to take a view on that. But I think in terms of, in terms of Q2, it, the, 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 the ducks are starting to line up in a row and it's starting to look interesting for a second quarter rally. Chris, always nice to see you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Chris Watling, the CEO and Chief Market Strategist of Longview Economics. Uh, Head online to find out why the head of Russia's Sovereign Wealth Fund thinks the US and Russia should be working together to defeat coronavirus. Uh, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard says the US economy is not in free fall despite concerns over the impact of the virus and the rise in unemployment. In a television interview on Sunday, he added, quote, there is nothing wrong with the economy itself, stating it could recover once the spread of the virus eases. The US labor market contracted for the first time in nearly a decade in March. As shutdowns took their toll on the world's biggest economy, US non-farm payrolls plummeted by 710,000, far exceeding estimates. The decline brings an end to 113 months of consecutive job growth. The unemployment rate also rose above expectations to 4.4%, its biggest increase since 1975. However, the data doesn't fully include the nearly 10 million jobless claims filed in the final two weeks of March, which could lead to a further rise in unemployment. Let's take a look at U.S. futures. As you can see, we're looking at a strong start to trade this morning. Uh, Dow Jones looking at a near 800-point rise at the open. This week, investors in the U.S. and around the world eyeing that OPEC Plus meeting. We've also got the Eurogroup here in Europe meeting later this week to try to come up with a collective fiscal scheme. Uh, And, of course, we're coming off of uh, last week in the U.S. where we got all that new jobless data, jobless claims on Thursday showing another record week for Americans claiming unemployment. And then Friday, that non-farm payrolls report. In terms of the close to the week last week, we did close in negative territory. Dow Jones down 1.7 percent. S&P 500 lost about 1.5 percent with 10 of the 11 sectors there ending in negative territory. Utilities was the key underperformer on Friday. Staples was the best performer. And then the tech-heavy Nasdaq ending about 1.5 percent lower. But looking at the week overall, it was fairly muted, a fairly muted start to April with the Dow down nearly 3 percent. S&P dropping about 2%, and the NASDAQ holding up slightly better, down 1.7%. So some moves lower to start out the new quarter, but nothing too drastic compared to the moves we saw in March. Let's take a look at Asian markets and what we're seeing in the latest trade there. Green across the board. You've got the Hang Seng over in Hong Kong trading about 1.1% higher. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 bouncing 2.8%, so fairly strong session coming together there. Uh, Over in South Korea, the cost speed's uh, up about 2.6%. Australian stocks 
leading the way up 4%. Uh, taking a look at opening calls, let's see what's in store for the European market open. A strong bounce at the open here as well. So very different picture to where we left off last week. The DAX is looking at a near 350-point rise at the open. Clearly, investors are shrugging off the concerns around tension between Saudi Arabia and Russia as today's OPEC Plus meeting was delayed. FTSE MIB looking at a near 600-point jump at the open. We did get some encouraging signals around the data, the virus data that is so crucial to investors as and, and everyone around the world right now, perhaps providing some hope for investors this morning and setting the tone for a strong start to trade here in Europe and also in the U.S. Jeff. Thank you, Juliana. Coming up on the program as EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen calls for a new European Marshall Plan, Germany again stresses such a package won't include corona bonds. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back. Italy's daily COVID-19 death toll has risen by 525. That is the lowest number in over two weeks. The number of new cases has also flattened, with Saturday seeing a lower increase in confirmed cases than the day before. But government officials have warned the public not to lower their guard after a month-long lockdown. This as the country's scientific community looks to launch a so-called second phase in containing the spread of the disease. Speaking in an exclusive interview on NBC's Meet the Press, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte thanked his people for their great sacrifice, urging for international collaboration to not give up these gains. In this moment, uh, I cannot say when the lockdown will stop because uh, we are following the suggestions of our scientists in the, that are in the uh, Scientific and Technical Committee. But uh, you have to consider that Italy has been uh, the first country in Europe that, uh, of course, uh, faced this uh, pandemic. Our response has uh, not been perfect, maybe, but we have been acting the best of our knowledge. Today, I see that uh, our model is implemented by the countries and its validity has been acknowledged by the WHO. And the results so far indicate that we are on the right path. Therefore, the most important message to give to our citizens is uh, stay home as much as possible. Do not go down. Do not go out. And if you must leave your home, for example, to go to work or to buy food, always respect our safety rules. We are asking our people a great sacrifice. I'm aware of it. But it is the only way to defeat the pandemic altogether. The more we respect the rules, the sooner we will get out. It sounds like there was a story in the New York Times today that that if with testing that you're hoping in your country that in order to reopen parts of the economy and reopening parts of the country, that if you you might be able to have, okay, if you have the antibody to the virus, you can work 
and if you don't, you have to stay home. Do you think that is in Italy's future? We will work for that, but in the, this moment we are all in the same battle. We are fighting the same powerful and invisible enemy. Our countries in the world are hit, and we are all in front line. Uh, if uh, an outpost withdraws, the virus will spread again, and uh, our efforts and sacrifice would be in vain. For this reason, it's crucial the cohesion and cooperation of our democracies and its strategic, the international collaboration. Uh, Prime Minister Conte there. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez says Europe needs to introduce wartime measures to help the bloc's reconstruction and recovery. In an open letter published across Europe, he emphasised the need for so-called corona bonds. Spain is among the most vocal EU states. Uh, calling for a new debt instrument that would bring shared liability for Eurozone debt. However, countries like Germany and the Netherlands have rejected the idea of mutualising European debt obligations. Now, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has urged EU member states to invest several billion euros in a new, quote, Marshall Plan for Europe. Von der Leyen said the fund would have a similar impact as the American, America's post-war recovery program for Western Europe, as well as help spur solidarity among member states. Annette is in Frankfurt and joins us now with more. Annette, we know Germany has been uh, pretty strongly opposed to the idea of joint debt issuance. What's been the German reaction to Ursula von der Leyen's Marshall Plan. I think there is actually um, some skepticism still also with that Marshall Plan, but um, also Germans know that we need to show some sign of solidarity with Southern Europe. So I think there is not one German uh, answer to it. For example, their reaction from the Green Party and also the Social Democratic Party, which are actually supporting Corona bonds or some neutralization of that debt, which is now needed to cure the situation or to help countries like Spain and Italy, because those voices are also saying that we need to show solidarity solidarity now if we want to keep Europe together. We are back um, in a time where the rhetoric is getting very yeah, harsh toward, or like divided in Europe. It reminds me very much of the time of the debt crisis where it was a lot of finger pointing, etc. And that is right where we are. Also, what, when we look at what uh, various commissioners are saying in Brussels, they're very much lobbying for Corona bonds, also today in an opaque uh, in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. So I think the jury is out whether we get them or not, especially if we could actually restrict them just for the debt which is needed now to help the countries in question. Sanchez is clearly arguing for a wartime economy, saying we need to have an instrument in place which does not leave those countries like Spain and Italy, which have the worst out break alone with all the money they needed to raise and afterwards potentially head into a next crisis. Van der Leyen is saying um, that we actually need to have a big budget to cure the situation. Annette, I just want to point out the differences here because I think it is very important that our audience understands this. The Marshall Plan was effectively aid given to European countries by the United States. This um, 17 billion back at the, at the time was effectively handed over and there was no expectation, I don't think, that these countries would pay it back at some point. 
Now, that is very different from the idea of obviously a, a corona bond that is administered by the ESM, which would establish a new standard of paper that represents mutual debt liability in the eurozone. Obviously, you know the difference is, but I just want to point that up here. Is uh, Ms. von der Leyen, as a German, going down this road because she feels that there is a constituency in Germany that would be prepared to say, we just write this off and hand over a check, rather than we get involved in creating a debt instrument that could in future be used to draw us more and more tightly into an economic relationship with the rest of the uh, Eurozone. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. What she wants, von der Leyen, is a so-called Marshall Plan, which mainly consists of a huge EU budget. So it would be like one-off expenses or one-off costs for uh, the countries who can afford it. And perhaps one could even speculate that Germany could contribute a little bit more and perhaps there might be some waiver for the likes of Italy and Spain. But that's pure speculation. But I think that is the way forward, what von der Leyen really wants. And that is a cleaner way and that is a way which is not so controversial. Out of Brussels, you just hear that Corona bonds are such a, yeah, it is such an infected, so to say, instrument because people kind of hate the idea of mutualized debt, especially in the northern hemisphere in Europe. And that is why it is most likely not going to happen um, even as a one-off uh, help. Because as you were saying or arguing, once it's there, it is there and you can always reactivate it. And that's why as well Olaf Scholz yesterday in a public appearance on, uh, on domestic TV here in Germany was reiterating that what he things make sense is a three-layer approach, which is A, the ESM, then the European Investment Bank, and then on, on top of that, there should be some uh, support in terms of um, yeah, labor market support, like very generous short-term working scheme that we don't see massive layoffs in the southern hemisphere in Europe, and that should be funded by the North. And ultimately, it has to be funded by a big European budget, and that is what von der Leyen is lobbying for now. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.